Lord Jesus, we just want to thank and praise you that at the beginning of John's gospel, it says that the word was with God and the word was God, that you are the word and your word dwells among us. You are present with us. And so we pray that you would be present now as we open up your word. God, that you would speak to us the way in which we need to be spoken to, to be drawn closer to you, more faithful to you, to bring greater glory to your name. God, I'm mindful that, that this week has been yet another difficult week for so many, not just in our midst, but especially those who we've seen video and, and pictures and maybe have friends and family in places like Kentucky and the surrounding states that have have uh, been through just devastating weather and tornadoes. God, we pray that you give them what they need. God, that you would give them peace and that that peace would extend to us here as well as we have come before you now. God, that we might be changed, grown closer to you when we leave than when we come. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our reading is in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the, only one, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Just just before, literally just before I I began writing my sermon this week, I sat at my computer and I got an email. And it was an email uh, asking for me to to respond to an employment reference for a longtime member of our church who no longer lives in this area and uh, is looking for a new job. And I, I have to tell you, I love responding to those requests. So if anybody needs a reference check, I love doing that, um, especially when I think as highly of someone as I do of this particular individual. And it's because I, I get to then brag. I get to brag about their abilities and their gifts in a way that helps them uh, move forward in what they believe God is calling them to do. But unfortunately, because I love that part so much, it's always a little awkward when they inevitably ask the question about their weaknesses because that question comes up too. And when you think highly of a person, sometimes your answers can actually sound more like strengths in a, in a veiled disguise, right? Like what, what are their weaknesses? Well, well, they work too hard. You ever heard that one? Or they're, they're too committed. Or this person is just too honest. Or they, you know what, they're just consistently sacrificing their own needs for the needs of others. See, now you want me to be your guy, right? Right? That's, that's what, I, what I say. Because here's the thing. These are weaknesses. And you know, these are not really weaknesses at all, are they? They really aren't. At least they don't sound like it. Maybe they're not. But... If they're actually true of a person, they leave that person exhausted. 
Because you can only work so hard and be so committed and honest and sacrificial for so long before you are at the end of yourself, before you've given everything you have to give. And friends, that's where I think we find ourselves in this reading this morning on the third Sunday of Advent as we are preparing for the coming of Jesus on Christmas. Well, not just on Christmas, but for when he returns and for his presence to be born in all of the places in our lives that desperately need his hope and his peace and his joy and his love. And I I share this list of weaknesses because I wonder how many of you could also say that these weaknesses could be attributed to you as well. With less than two full weeks until Christmas, and I know I freaked out a couple of you that have not looked at your calendar this week, with less than two full weeks before Christmas, how many of us have been working too hard, have been too committed, have been too honest, have been too sacrificial? Are you afraid that you might putter out before you cross the finish line of the year 2021? And I ask this question pastorally because I know the answer for many of you that I talk to day in and day out is yes. You're exhausted. I'm exhausted. And so I want to begin here by pointing out that so is John the Baptist in our reading today. Today is the second Sunday that we're meeting John the Baptist. He's the cousin of Jesus, if you don't know. He's the one that God sent to prepare the way for the Lord. And the overarching theme that has covered throughout this season of Advent for us that points us to the purpose is that being prepared doesn't change what's coming, but it does change our experience. Being prepared doesn't change what's coming, but it does change our experience. And so John, at the beginning of his ministry, preached a message of repentance, which is turning from one thing or letting something go in order to take on something new, a new direction. And John's ministry was to preach that message to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And he got super practical with that message. He said literally, right? Like make room for Jesus. If you have two shirts in your closet and someone has none, give one of those shirts away and make room in your closet for Jesus. Make room in your life for integrity by letting go of deception. I talked about my own calendar, right? Look ahead and make the hard decisions to say no to some things that you might say yes to the right things. Give of yourself. And I I talked about how instinctive this is, that even people that aren't religious at this time of year instinctively know that this is how we prepare the way for Jesus. This is the time of year where people are giving more and they're volunteering more and they're doing more and they're opening up their homes more. All of those things feel right. And so people were baptized into this way of preparation by John the Baptist. And then it was followed by Jesus himself coming. And as Jesus' ministry grew, John the Baptist and his ministry of preparation changed. It changed. And eventually his service would lead to his arrest. And it would lead him to a jail cell. And that's where we find John in our reading today. But in order to understand what's happening, we have to take a step back. If you look at the verse that we began with, verse 18, it says, John's disciples told him about all these things. Do you know what all these things are? 
If you don't, that's what we need to go back and ask. What is it that his disciples are telling him about in jail? And it's actually a really good story. It's just before this. If your Bible's open, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus performs this incredible miracle. He's in the town of Nain, and this huge crowd is following him and the disciples, and they walk in, and a hearse with the body of a young man passes by Jesus and his entourage. Okay, it's not, not a hearse. About 2,000 years later, we'd have hearses. But, but it was the equivalent to that. It was something called a beer, which was like an, a stretcher. It was like an open-air um, carrier for a dead corpse. That's what passed by Jesus. And so this beer passes by Jesus. And not far behind it is another crowd of people that are surrounding a woman who is mourning the loss of her only son. And this is significant, not just for the way in which you would find it significant, but in Jesus' day, for a woman to have lost her husband and to have lost her only son, she literally would likely not be able to support herself. She could not go out and get a job to take care of everything. The culture there would not allow it. Her future was more likely than not one of poverty at the mercy of the scraps of others. This is what's happened to this woman. Her son is dead. She has lost her heart. Now she is soon going to be wondering where her next meal and place to lay her head is. This is what's happening right now, just before our reading. Verse 13, when the Lord Jesus saw this woman, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. And this isn't even the passage that I'm preaching on this weekend, but I had to stop. I, I chewed on this for several hours because I, I couldn't help but think how personal this moment must have been for Jesus. Because his own mother is a widow. His own mother is a widow. And the, the vulnerability of that fact is not lost on Jesus so much so that even when he's dying on the cross, can you imagine the excruciating pain of dying on a cross? And yet in the midst of that, Jesus looks down at his mother and at John the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says, behold your mother, behold your son. He hands her off to ensure that she has been taken care of. And so I look at the these words and I think of Jesus own experience and I cannot help but come to the conclusion that Jesus has a special place in his heart for unwed mothers and for widows for unwed mothers and for widows Jesus has a special place in his heart for the kind of people for whom Christmas is not a happy season and so his heart went out to this woman he told her not to cry. And then verse 14, it says that Jesus then went up and he touched the bier that was carrying the son. And the bearers stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and he began to talk and Jesus gave the son back to his mother. The back door of the hearse opened up and the dead man walked out. Makes me think, do they even put a handle on the inside of the back door of a hearse? It's kind of an obnoxious question, right? And I'm asking it not really to be funny, but just to help us just to, to just try to imagine what is it that this happened. Like, what would this have looked like to the people that were there? How did it feel? 
I mean, not only is this, this mother, she's got her son back, right? But along with him now, in an instant, she's got her security back, her hope for the future. And this terrifying bewilderment. Her and the crowds that were gathered there had just watched this thing happen. Like, look at verse 16. It says, fear seized all of them. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has looked favorably on his people, and the word about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, if you have your Bible open, and it's the Bible that, you, that we have here in the pews, or, or if your Bible is the same translation, you'll see, you won't see the word fear there on that verse. You'll see the word awe, right? But almost every other English translation translates the Greek word behind that word as fear, because awe can often mean like what I felt this morning. Did anybody get up early enough to see the beautiful colors in the sunrise this morning? Right? That's awe, right? That's beautiful. That's awe. Fear is probably a more appropriate translation for the Greek word behind it, which is phabas. Fabas means fear. When the, for example, here's some other places we find the same word. When, when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, right? Bam, burst of light. They fall on their faces. It says they were fabas. They were afraid. When Jesus commanded in chapter 8 of Luke, you can look at it. When he commanded the storm to cease, the disciples are on a boat. Big storm. They're about to keel over. Jesus gets up, tells the storm to stop, and it listens and it says that the disciples were fabas. Were they afraid of the storm? Yes, but they were even more afraid of the one in their midst who with his words could tell the storm to stop, and it does. Same word if you look when Jesus died and disappeared from the tomb, right? The Easter story. Here's what happened. The authorities were searching Jerusalem for his followers. They wanted to kill them because they wanted to kill the story of the resurrection. And it says that the disciples hid in a room and that they were fabas. They were afraid. That's how these people felt after witnessing this miracle, that, that Jesus has risen this man, this young man, and given him back to his mother. They were afraid, but they were also praising God, because what could this mean? And it's immediately after this that we get to our reading today. Verse 18, it says, John's disciples told him about all these things. Now you know. All these things. That's what all these things are. And so John called two of his disciples... And he sent them to ask Jesus a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And so when these men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to, to you to ask the question, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And so Jesus is out there pulling dead young men out of hearses and making them alive. And John the Baptist, the one who God has called to prepare the world for this one to come, is sitting in a jail cell, and he is wondering, is this really him? Is this really the one to come? Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. 
He gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now just sit in this moment for a minute. The very one, John, this is John, the one who has been called to prepare the way of the Lord for Jesus. And he is the one that when he's locked up in a prison cell, only hearing about the miracles and the hope that is coming from the presence of the one the prophets have been calling for generations to come. This is the same John who has courage, who has faith, who has such power of God inside of him, infused in his very being, that before he was even born in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, when Mary comes and Jesus hasn't been born either, right? The two unborn children, they meet each other. John jumps on his mother's bladder he's excited and he hasn't even been born yet this is how close this man is to God and it's the same man John after too many days staring at a jail cell and hearing about the miracles and the teachings and the hope that others are experiencing the one called to prepare others is wondering if this is really the one that he has been called to prepare for, and if this is hope for the world, and I'll bet he's also wondering if this is hope for him too. And you, you can't blame him for asking the question. You can't blame him. After all, his weaknesses are that he has worked too hard. We know this about John. He has been too committed. He's been really honest. It's going to get him killed. He is literally going to sacrifice himself for others. Literally, Herod is going to have him beheaded. That's the way in which he's going to end his life. And so in this moment, he is wondering. And I point this out because I wonder how many of you are in the same moment John is in right now. How many of you are wondering too, is the hope of Jesus the real thing? Because we've all heard the stories We've heard the miracles. And John isn't questioning their validity. He's not questioning whether or not this stuff is really true. His own people are watching it and coming back and telling him what's happening. John believes it all. He has faith. But there is a limit. Let's just be honest, right? There is a limitation to these stories when you're the one hearing them from inside a jail cell, right? Whether it's a physical jail cell it's a jail cell of your mind. It's a jail cell of your addiction. It's a jail cell of your heart. It's a jail cell of, of your physical predicaments, your health. John is waiting for a hope that goes beyond our circumstances, a hope that goes even beyond the miracles, a hope that could reach him in his bondage to chains. And so now that he's alone, he's alone with questions. And it's through these questions that I believe, what I see here, that God uses to prepare him for the hope too. I think God uses the questions as a tool for preparation. And I believe that because look at verse 23. Jesus does not say, blessed is anyone who does not question on account of me. 
He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble. John, God doesn't have any problem. Jesus doesn't have any problem with the question that John is asking. He is not scolding him for asking the question or suggesting there's anything wrong with it, which makes me wonder for those of you and myself who have questions, maybe even the questions that come out of our moments of desperation and exhaustion and grief are used by God as preparation for the coming of Jesus too. And the reason why I wonder that is because when we ask our questions, what we see here is sometimes God just might answer it. 400 years before this, in the Old Testament, there's a prophet, Malachi is his name, and he foretold the coming of the one that would prepare the way of the Messiah. He, he foretold John the Baptist. Malachi 4.5, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. And I share that with you because I, I wonder if John the Baptist was thinking of those words when he heard the story of this dead son returned to his mother. And I'm not just wondering that in my head because of nothing, but, but, but I'm wondering it because if you go back, we don't have time to read this today, but if you go back to 1 Kings 17, you can read about a story when Elijah... Elijah was used by God generations before John, generations before Jesus. Elijah was used by God to bring back to life a son to a widow. Now, we don't have time to tell that story, but I want to point out that this is not the first time that God has done something like this. And so I have to wonder if if maybe John is just logically wondering, is Jesus just another prophet? It's a question people have asked across generations. Is he just another prophet? And the answer that we're going to learn here is no, because the prophet that is called to be Elijah for this moment is John the Baptist, and Jesus is the Messiah. And the reason we know is because John was called, the prophet was called to turn hearts of children to parents and parents to children. But when Jesus comes to the grieving parent, he doesn't turn the mother's heart to her son. He turns his own heart to hers. And he turns her heart back to his. Because see, while God can heal a widow's son, and he does, and he has, and he will, for our salvation, Jesus himself would have to become the widow's son. The widow's son that would die for the sins of the world so that he could turn Every heart, your heart, my heart, back to him as well, that we might turn our hearts to his, that we might not find healing just in a moment, but we might be prepared to be healed for all of eternity by God's own rescue of us from the prison of sin and death and all of its ramifications in the broken world that we live in today. And so Jesus, after he sends this answer back to John, he turns to this crowd. Remember, now you know the context. It's a crowd that was afraid. Fabas, 
They knew what he had done. He had risen. This, 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 this dead man is now alive. He did all of this, right? They're, they're afraid, and yet they're glorifying God, and they're questioning, what does this mean? And John, it says, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to that crowd about John, lest you think John is a bad man for asking the question. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? See, these people have been prepared by John. What were you looking for? A reed swayed in the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet, because this is the one Malachi said, he wrote 400 years ago, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, says Jesus, among those born of women, there is none greater than John, and yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Let me summarize this in just one sentence. This is what this verse means. John the Baptist is great. And he is great as the last generation of prophets who will call on the coming of hope and peace and love and joy that comes with Jesus. John is great, but even the lowliest person in the season to come after John, including us, 2,000 years later, will be considered greater. And the reason why is because no one after John will ever have to wonder like John did, because they will know that hope is coming, because hope is already here, because Jesus has come. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. And because he would not just be born, but that he would die and rise again for the last 2,000 years, you are in a good company of people that have continued to hold on to that assured hope until he returns, knowing that he's coming, brings joy, even in exhaustion, even in our questions, even while we wait. There's a confidence and I'll leave you with a, with, a, with a story to kind of bring that point home. When I was growing up, I'll just be honest, we all know that Christmas is not about the presents, right? But when I was growing up, Christmas was, for me, all about the presents. Anybody, anybody else growing up, just be honest, I'm not alone here. Okay, so, 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 so here's the thing. It was, it was especially, I just have to, I have to preface this too. I told the last service this. I don't know if my parents know what I'm about to say, and they're in this service. So this is a little bit of repentance too, just, just, just forewarning you. When I was growing up, it was all about the presence, and especially those years when I was old enough to know what I wanted, but I was smart enough to discern what my parents were willing to purchase, what their budget was, you know, that kind of a thing. And I had a somewhat realistic expectation of what might be waiting under the tree on Christmas morning. But, but one year, my, my expectations became very, very realistic. And for the rest of my childhood, those expectations were very realistic because, I'm sorry, I figured out where my parents hid the presents before they wrapped them. <laughs> Maybe you knew this already, I don't know was in their closet, in their bedroom, under the clothes, right? 
That's where they were, right? And so here's what I would do from that point forward every Christmas. I was the oldest of four, which meant my mom and dad were both very busy, which would give me ample opportunity when they were gone doing something else to go into their closet, dig through the clothes, and see exactly what it is that was going to be under the tree that year. Now, now kids, and I see some kids in the congregation here. Let me just be careful here. Don't go home and say, Pastor told me it's okay to look at my presence. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not encouraging anyone to peek at what they're getting for Christmas. But I do want to encourage you to peek at what came on Christmas. <coughs> Excuse me. Peek at what came on Christmas. Because when we look, we know. We can be confident. We can be secure. We know where to look. The empty cross. The empty tomb. And because we know that the cross and the tomb are empty. You and I can be like my 10-year-old self, anxiously waiting and excited, even if we're exhausted with questions, because we can look ahead with confidence that we know what's coming. And that's why Jesus said that everyone that comes after John has the potential to be greater. And it's why the Apostle Paul in the same predicament that John found himself in, not too long after that, would write in Philippians chapter 4, from a jail cell, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so would you join me now as we pray and we ask God to make the words of Paul true for us as well. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that your heart is close to those who are hurting and broken, who don't know what their future holds, to the widows that are mourning the loss of their son, to the widows that are mourning the loss of their husbands, to those who are mourning the loss of security and confidence. Those who are sitting in what feels like a prison cell and wondering if the miracles and the teachings and the hope that is happening outside the four walls of their life is true for them as well. If you are really the one to come. If you are really the one who is already here to bring us hope and peace and joy and love. The Apostle Paul, at the beginning of this letter that he wrote in prison, said it would be better for me to die because I know that my death has been overcome by Jesus. That's, that's what he meant. He had such confidence having met the resurrected Lord 
that he could put himself out there, that he could sacrifice himself to share this hope with the world, that he could even sit in a jail and rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Lord God, I'll just acknowledge that I am not at the same place as the Apostle Paul. There are places in my heart and in my life right now where instead of not being anxious about anything, I am anxious about everything. And I know that that word is true for many of us here as well as we look ahead at this busy season, but as we acknowledge our questions and recognize that we desperately need your hope and peace, and joy, and love. And so, God, would you help us to pray the way Paul prayed? To take the things right now that we're thinking about that are causing worry and anxiety, whatever those things are, Paul says not to ignore them. He says instead of being anxious about anything, take every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving to a God that has given us life and present those requests to him. And the promise is not that we're necessarily going to see in this particular moment how that is going to play out, but you say through your word, through your servant Paul, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray for your peace to guard every heart and every mind in this room. Every anxious heart, every worried heart, every mourning heart, every angry heart, every sinful heart, every questioning heart, every heart. Would you guard us with your peace? And would you give us the confidence to know that you are here? As we open up our eyes, I... I, I 